If a physician is not recommending a second opinion or declining a patient's asking for one, that's a pretty good signal that a patient should actually seek care somewhere else. This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and today our guest is Dr. David Cohn. Dave is the director of the Division of Gynecologic Oncology here at the James, and he's also the chief medical officer of the James. And today, Dave is going to fill us in on something that probably isn't talked about enough, but is really vital when it comes to treating people with cancer. And that's the importance of getting a second opinion after you've been diagnosed with cancer and before you start your treatment. Dave, it's great to have you back on the podcast. It's great to be here again, Steve. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. And so, Dave, about 1.7 million people in the United States are going to be diagnosed with cancer this year alone. And you uh, have to give this life-changing news to many of your patients. So take us through what it's like to deliver this news, what people need to know so they can make the best decisions, get the best treatment, and, and have the best outcomes. So that statistic is really staggering. Um, thinking about that number of patients who are diagnosed this year yeah. with a malignancy. And um, it is quite amazing that we as oncologists are seeing patients at this crossroads, providing them with news that truly is life altering, regardless of how early or how late the cancer is. Obviously, at the time of this diagnosis, things are very different after that point in time. And so when we say those three words, you have cancer, patients are affected in ways that you know we can't always predict how things are going to go. And you make the point about how is it to deliver that news. And I think that what we find is that very often at the time that we make these comments, patients may not hear anything after that point in time. They're in shock. They're in shock. Yeah. Absolutely. And so working with the patient, with whatever support system is with them, if they have other folks with them in the in the room, is really the key to delivering the news in a way that is uh, effective and that can ultimately get them to pursue the treatment that's best for them. Can you tell when you're talking to someone if it's, uh, in your case, since it's gynecologic cancers, it's a woman, can you tell if she's zoned out and that you need to make sure that the person there with her, her partner, spouse, or, or daughter, or son, are you then focused more on making sure the, the caregiver understands what you're talking about and can helps and can then later tell the person with the cancer? So having an advocate with you in the room as a cancer patient is really a key to yeah. making sure that we can get the correct, correct message delivered. And so I would always encourage a patient who is going to see an oncologist to have someone else with them who can serve to either record the conversation, uh, to write down notes, to serve as a second pair of eyes and ears so that issues that might be nuanced or even things that are you know as big as are you getting chemotherapy or radiation are not missed. And so, yeah, I think that we can certainly tell whether or not a patient's struggling with this diagnosis and more so than delivering the news to the uh, individual that's with that patient, I think it's just giving the patient time and having them digest that information at that moment, sometimes stepping out of the room, sometimes coming yeah. back again afterwards, and then delivering the message uh, at, once they're in a position to be able to receive it. But I certainly think that having an advocate with you is the key to making sure that we're not losing any of the information that's transferred between oncologist and patient. And I love that idea, and I hadn't thought of this, of recording the conversation, which I should have thought of because I always, when I'm interviewing people, record the conversation. And sometimes it takes me two or three times to listen through to fully understand when it's complicated stuff. So that's a great uh, tip for people. 
record your conversations with your doctors and listen to them later when you're in a better frame of mind to understand. Right. I would not encourage them to sing because you never know what you're going to get. <laughs> okay. But certainly recording the conversation is an effective means. All right. Um, so then you then have to explain what's wrong with them. You explain their cancer and their options. So how do you do that? You know, when you approach a patient, um, for example, if this is a new patient that's coming in for a first diagnosis, I kind of walk through the general steps uh, very similarly for every patient, which is naming the cancer. You know, you have a cancer of the colon, for example, as a first step. And then from there, kind of getting more nuanced and more focused, saying you have a stage two colon cancer. And the treatment for this colon cancer is going to be A, B, and C. And so if you start with the big picture, you know, what is the cancer that you have? What is the stage, meaning how far is it spread? What is the treatment going to be? And then looping back again and saying, are there any questions you have about this introduction so far? And then we're going to get more specific from there. We talked about surgery, for example. We're going to have you see a surgeon or we're going to have you discuss the specifics of the surgery, we recommend doing this laparoscopically or through a traditional incision. And so I think that starting with broad concepts and then narrowing it down to the specifics that the patient's ultimately going to need to hear is the key to delivering the message effectively. It's a bit of an art form for for a doctor to deliver this kind of information. I, I take it you've learned and improved in this over the years, unfortunately, by doing it way too many times. But it's it's something you're probably better at now than you were 10, 20 years ago. Oh, there's no doubt about the fact that medicine is an art, um, and the canvas is painted differently depending upon the scene that's in front of you. So I don't approach every patient the similar way. While I might have the structure the same, the message that's delivered, how it's delivered, um, while it might be in the same order, is very different depending upon, you know, for example, the patient's state of mind at the time, their sense, uh, their background education how much studying and research they've done before they've come to this appointment as well. They might be uh, understanding everything because they've read everything about what they think they have already. Medical education today is much more effective in training physicians about the art of medicine and especially that about communication than it is uh, when I was in medical school. So I think that we're in heading in the right direction and significantly improving in training our physicians to be the artists in delivering the news effectively. I, I do know from talking to people that the doctors here at the James are good at that and care about that. And that's sort of the first step is caring about connecting with your patients. Absolutely. So, so now that sort of leads us into the whole second opinion question. So, um, you know, I take it you probably see people who are come to the James for second opinions and then vice versa. So how does walk us through that process of second opinions and uh, do you recommend it? Do you help people? How many people come to you? Kind of, there's a lot to cover. So let's dive in. Sure. And second opinions, let's start with just what it is. And so when a patient is diagnosed with a cancer, they have an appointment with an oncologist of some type, either it's a medical oncologist, a gynecologic oncologist, a surgical oncologist. And that's the individual generally at the first stop who's going to make the treatment plan. Um, from there, that's sort of the equivalent of your primary physician, but for your cancer. Sure, absolutely. And that person helps you uh, navigate the cancer world. The, the cancer quarterback, I guess, is okay, another description. So once that plan is set forth, um, very often patients will pursue the plan and assume that that is the correct direction in which they should be treated. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that. Um, a second opinion is 
reaching outside of that original diagnosis and conversation to ensure that what was said in the first setting is consistent across another provider that is similarly trained, for example. I would guess since the James has such a great regional and national reputation, a lot of people come here and to see you and other doctors here for second opinions from they after they initially get their diagnosis from sort of regional or clinics or smaller, less advanced uh, centers and clinics. Absolutely. At the James, we see a lot of patients that come in for second opinions. And uh, there are a lot of physicians out there who recommend seeing a comprehensive cancer center, uh, an, an area of regional expertise for a second opinion. And what this does is it allows that oncologist to be validated that their plan is correct. Um, it allows the patient to ensure that whatever treatment's been recommended is the correct course of action. Um, and I think it's important to recognize that providing an opinion is one form of second opinion. The process of, again, establishing the diagnosis saying that you have this stage and here's the treatment. But I think there are a couple other components that are really important in a second opinion. One of them is the review of the pathology. So when someone is diagnosed with a cancer, very often it's done with a biopsy or a surgical resection, removal of the tumor. And, and Which is then, yeah, then looked at under a microscope or, or DNA analysis. Correct. And so the microscopic evaluation is one part of the delivery of cancer care. And a second opinion very often involves the re-review of that pathologic specimen under the microscope. So you don't take another biopsy. You just look at what was already biopsied again. That's correct. And okay. that's beyond just reading the report and saying this is what it says. It's actually getting the blocks of tumor or the slides on glass, having them sent to the James or other areas for a second opinion, and having the pathologist review it. And the same thing is often done for radiology, for x-ray tests, because the combination of the diagnosis that's made, how far is it spread by x-ray, and what it looks like under the microscope, or as you point out by DNA testing, the genetics of the cancer may determine what the next step is going to be in treatment. So very often a second opinion involves seeing an oncologist, having the pathology re-reviewed, and having the radiology tests also reinterpreted by a radiologist or a clinician. And the place where you've the patient went first sends that all that information to the place where they're getting the second opinion. That's correct. And so you asked the question about how is it done? And very often the second opinion starts with a referral from an outside physician to somebody at the James or from the James to somebody on the outside. And the patient releases their information to that new center. Uh, and then there's a coordination of care that's provided to allow the blocks of tumor, the slides, the radiology tests, and the documentation to be sent to the new oncologist. Okay. So what happens when someone, one of your patients asks you if they should get a second opinion, where do you refer them to? So when a patient asks me for a second opinion, what we'll talk about is um, where they desire to go. Uh, and so I think that it's really important to recognize that there's different types of second opinions. You could see a second opinion regionally, someone within Columbus. You can see a second opinion uh, nationally, somewhere else around the country. Let's say that somebody has a rare type of cancer that I treat, that there are only a few centers in the country that have see specific that, expertise. Yeah. I might send them to that area. Um, but if it is a relatively common malignancy that patients are, are seen with this type of cancer across Columbus or anywhere in the country, I might send them more conveniently to the patient to a place closer to where they live. Does the person always have to go if it's in Houston or California? Does the person always have to go or can their biopsies be sent and they can do it over the phone or does the, or 
does a person literally have to meet with the doctor? Are there any rules or laws about that? There are no laws about it, but each individual hospital might have a different policy about how they manage their second opinion patients. It's not uncommon to have the ability to have a second opinion remotely, yeah, either by a with technology, correct, either yeah. by a video conference plus the slides being reviewed and then a discussion. You know, there is certainly a part of the second opinion that involves a more nuanced conversation face to face that might be more effective or examination also that you can't do remotely. So it really just depends upon the specific circumstance. Yeah, because that's an added expense and anxiety for a person to have to travel halfway across the country to meet another doctor that that can be. Uh, eliminated by doing it remotely. Absolutely. And, and so it really does boil down to the importance of the second opinion, how much information is going to be gained by seeing someone face-to-face, the policy of the hospital as well. Um, but I think, again, getting back to the general question about when to have a second opinion and how this is done, I think that it really is critical that uh, a patient be able to ask his or her physician whether or not they believe they should have a second opinion. Right. Um, we all have, every patient has the right to ask for that, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And so very often I'll encourage my patients to consider a second opinion if they're interested. Um, and likewise, it is very important for patients to be able to ask uh, for a referral for a second opinion if this is something that they're interested in. Dave, some people might be embarrassed or hesitant to ask for a second opinion because they'll feel like the doctor knows what he's talking about and I don't want to hurt his feelings. So how do people sort of get past that? Yeah, it's a really good point. And so it's just important to recognize that a patient will never hurt his or her physician's feelings by asking for a second opinion. Um, A physician should be very comfortable with his or her recommendation such that they should actually be comfortable with a patient asking for a referral, and they should be very comfortable referring a patient for a second opinion. And I would say that if a physician is not recommending a second opinion or declining a patient's asking for one, that's a pretty good signal that a patient should actually seek care somewhere else. So you're not going to hurt a a physician's feelings by asking for a second opinion, And in many ways, it actually validates that first physician's recommendation as being correct by having a patient have a second opinion that agrees with the first doc and then having them come back to that first physician for their care. That's a great point. And we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with Dave Cohn. A revolution in lung cancer treatment is happening at the James. We're proving lung cancer isn't solely defined by location and stage, but rather the individual molecules and genes that drive it. Simply put, there is no routine lung cancer. That's why our world-renowned specialists put their expertise towards treating one particular lung cancer, yours. At The James, we go beyond the routine to prevent, detect, treat, and cure your lung cancer. To learn more, call 1-800-293-5066. We're back with Dave Cohn, and we're talking about the importance of getting a second opinion after your cancer diagnosis. And Dave, one, Dave, one of the things we didn't mention before that's always on people's mind these days is um, health insurance. Will health insurance cover the costs of a second opinion? So most health insurance policies will cover cost of a second opinion, but obviously it's going to be important for a patient to work with her insurance provider to to make sure that that is the right. case. Check first, yeah. Um, but a physician's office can sometimes help with that one as well. Um, and very interestingly, many insurers require that a patient get a second opinion before pursuing treatment. And I think that, again, this validates, as we talked about, the importance of ensuring that you know all the teams are on the same page and that everyone agrees that the treatment that's recommended is the correct treatment. 
That's a great point because the insurance companies want to make sure that the person's getting, they look at it from, you know, financially that they want the person to get the best, most efficient treatment. So they're treated and cured the, the quickest and it's not lingering and, and doesn't have a bad result, which requires even more treatment. So that's, Absolutely. Yeah. So if the insurance companies want you to get a second opinion, then you really should think about that. So here's the question that's important. What if you get a different second opinion uh, or if you're giving a, diff- a second opinion that's, that's different than what the initial doctor said, how does a patient decide what to do? It, this gets back into the art of medicine. Yeah. Um, sometimes you can have the same general treatment idea, but in a different order or uh, in a different sequence. And so whenever there's a difference in opinion about the you know treatment that's recommended, you can almost uh, recommend a third opinion as one option. But I think very often what should happen is there should be a conference between the two physicians that have provided opinions uh, and try to figure out whether there's uh, some way that we can get on the same page for what the recommendation might be. So there's no one single answer about how to resolve a discrepant second opinion versus first opinion, but either working with the two oncologists together uh, or telling the patient that because of the art of medicine, there's different ways that you can approach a case. Um, and providing the patient with the pros and the cons so that she understands or he understands the differences between why the oncologist might have recommended A versus B and help that patient make what we call shared decision-making uh, so that she and the oncologist together can come to the right conclusion about what, what treatment is recommended. I would say that it is relatively rare to have a, an absolutely wrong recommendation provided. Uh, so it's not that someone is right versus somebody is wrong. It might just be, again, that nuanced conversation about risks and benefits and then incorporating the patient's own values uh, and what her desires are in coming up with a final recommendation. It's inter- interesting you say that, that there's no right and wrong, because as more and more different treatment options, more drugs, more different delivery systems are uh, discovered and FDA approved, there's more options for people and there there are less you know, like in the old days, there was three chemo drugs. Now there's so many more and there's so many more different ways to treat patients. So you're right that that two doctors could have a different opinion and who's to say who's right that they, you know, that's very hard to decide. I think the other benefit of a second opinion is also looking at options regarding clinical trials. Yeah, that's a great point. Because yeah. every different institution might have access to a different level of complexity of clinical research and clinical trials that are provided. So I think one of the pieces that a patient should ask when he or she is getting a second opinion is, are there options for clinical trials that might be available for me? And and talking to someone else recently about clinical trials, she said that people think that's like the last resort for people that no other treatments work. And nowadays that's not true. That a clinical trial could be your first line of treatment sometimes. Sure. And there's very important clinical trials in the upfront setting that might compare the current standard of care to the same standard of care plus something else, trying to improve survival, trying to minimize side effects. And so there's a lot of benefit for even like you're pointing out upfront clinical trials. You're right. It's not the last step anymore. It could be the first. And I think what you're, and I, I can sense from what you're saying is that's why it's important to first have a a doctor who's a specialist in your type of cancer. You only see women with gynecologic cancers and, and there's other 50 other cancer experts here. And as a comprehensive cancer center, there's hundreds of clinical trials. So the patients want to seek out 
experts in their type of cancer and a place that sees a lot of those cancers and has options in terms of clinical trials and all the newest treatments. Sure. You know, as we say, there's no routine cancer. And so this is a perfect um, time to think about that in general concept is that as an expert in gynecologic cancers, you do not want me treating your lung cancer or your colon cancer. You want me treating your gynecologic cancer. Um, It's what I know. I know the clinical trials. I know the science behind it. And so if that model's replicated across the entire system at the James, that justifies um, at least consideration of looking to an expert in that specific cancer. And that highlights the importance of being treated at a comprehensive cancer center. And as you pointed out, the clinical trials that support that entire infrastructure um, is one of the other significant benefits of being treated at uh, at a comprehensive cancer center. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And I get the sense also that that's why people come to you for a second opinion. If they're they're first treated and diagnosed at a small community hospital where that oncologist may see a variety of cancers, they want to go to someone like you that uh, specializes in the type of cancer that that woman has been diagnosed with. And also, from what I understand, people who are initially treated at comprehensive cancer centers because of all the things we just talked about have a better survival rate. That's true. Uh, Recent reports have demonstrated that higher volume centers, uh, centers that see a very large number of cancers, common and rare, have a better survival than those that are in lower volume hospitals by lower volume physicians. And so there is a suggestion that places that see the most number of cancers provide the best uh, chance of survival for these patients. And recent reports also have demonstrated that freestanding cancer hospitals such as the James, for patients who get chemotherapy, their survival is better than any other centers across the country as well. So beyond the access to experts in that field, there is also a suggestion that the outcomes of these patients who are seen at freestanding cancer hospitals and comprehensive cancer centers are better than community practice as well. Thanks, Dave. That was really interesting and important information. And I think it's the kind of information that's going to help newly diagnosed cancer patients here at the James and beyond. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Steve. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.